Hello and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with John Congleton. I'm very excited about this. Uh, John, I think, is a really wise and amazing producer. He has worked with an insane list of artists. Uh, St. Vincent, Explosions in the Sky, Manchester Orchestra, Blondie, Shoo Shoo, Cymbal Z Guitar, Swans, Chelsea Wolfe, Cloud Nothings, Ockerville River, The War on Drugs, along with his own band, The Paper Chase, which does really rad stuff. I think we get into a lot of really cool things, and so I'm excited about this. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the Metal Sucks podcast, which is the premier podcast in the metal community. Every episode features an interview with a member of a well-known band, with recent guests including members of Between the Buried to Me, The Black Dahlia Murder, I Hate God, Royal Thunder, and more. Tune in every Monday for a new episode featuring co-hosts Brandon and Pete's insight on the latest metal news and gossip, comedy sketches, and more. I also want to tell you and remind you that my new book, Processing Creativity, the Tools, Practices, and Habits Used to Make Music You're Happy With, is out in ebook, physical book, and audiobook. If you like this conversation, I guarantee you, you will like it as well. If you can help me out and you've read it and give it a review on Amazon, I would so, so, so appreciate that. You have no idea how much Amazon reviews help the authors you love, especially those of us who put out our books ourselves. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So how do you introduce yourself to someone you know is a total square and is it going to get what you do? Oh, man, <laughs> uh, that's actually a great question. Like I, I've, I've had this conversation with multiple people, like usually other people that are like do music or whatever, that when you sort of like go to a family reunion or something and, and meet like your third cousin or something like that who has no frame of reference and has no idea, like I usually just try to avoid the conversation as much as possible. Like usually what, like, you know, people will say, so what do you do or something like that? And I'll say, oh, I do music. And then usually the, a lot of times the conversation will just stop right there. Cause they'll just think that really that's just shorthand for you being like, uh, you know, somebody without a job, <laughs> which is fine with me. You know, I, I like, I, I would rather, I'd rather than think that I was just some sort of like vagrant or, or hooligan or something than actually have to sit there and talk about, uh, uh, music with, <laughs> I mean, yes. in, in general, in general, unless I'm talking with other musicians, I don't, I don't really like to talk about music all that much. Right there with you. Yeah. 
So tell us how you got to here today in music. Kind of just, you know, bizarrely one step at a time. The only goal I ever had was to record bands. There was never, there was never like a, a goal to be like a hotshot producer or, um, or or really anything. And I liked playing music, but early on, I kind of knew, sort of deep down, that I didn't want to make my soul living playing music because I knew that my tastes were going to be too left of center or something for for people uh, to, for me to actually, you know, really expect to generate any sort of like real income. And I never wanted to be in a situation where I felt like I had to play music that I didn't totally love to make money or something like that. So early on in playing in bands and whatnot, I, I didn't really harbor any of those delusions. But um, when my band went to record for the first time, it sort of like snapped into focus of like, oh, this is something I can do. You know, this seems like this seems like something I could do uh, well. And the process just really fascinated me. So really, it just started with I want to record bands. I want to record my friends or whatever. I started doing that. And um, very organically, people started to ask me to produce. So I started producing. And that's kind of when, there, you know, an actual career, you know, was cultivated, you know, people from who were more than one degree of separation started to uh, reach out to me to ask me to, to make their records, you know. So that's basically how it happened. And it just sort of has grown from, you know, from that point on. So in that, you obviously had the paper chase do you think mm -hmm. I always had this like kind of theory? Maybe it's just reflecting of like what I've done is that like when you're able to make I don't want ambitious is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it for the uh, sake of expediency music sure. that is a little bit more complicated than what the average person makes. It often draws in other musicians to wanting to work with you because they feel they could handle you. Do you think that played into you working with some more? ambitious groups or was it more just the other records you were making? I think it was a little bit of both. I think early on, like there were people that heard my band and thought, well, this is, you know, this is, um, not, you know, th this is obviously somebody who doesn't feel like constrained by doing A, B, and C, you know, the normal mm -hmm. way of making a record. And that appeals to a certain swath of people, not a very big swath of people, sort of astoundingly to me. But, you know, you kind of like, you make records that are, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to flatter myself, but mm -hmm. like more adventurous or whatever, you're going to attract those people who, who are looking to do something more slightly outside of the box. And as I said, it's sort of just like little ladder steps. You know, you you, um, you make a record that appeals to a certain group of people and, and they come and hunt you down. And But yeah, you know, I mean, certainly for a, a very long time, I was, I was existing very much outside of whatever anybody could call the mainstream. I wouldn't even call myself mainstream now. I was operating, you know, definitely in the more uh, esoteric and, and uh, you know, strange, strange world. So those people thought that this is somebody who they could, you know, connect with, get along with, you know. Cool. So you have your own studio, but from the looks of things, it looks like you've been traveling to a lot of other studios. What ends up being the mindset for that? And do you get upset being at other studios or is it more of a thrill? Well, I mean, there's no reason why anyone would know this, but I've been based out of LA now for a while. Mm. I own a studio back in Texas. That studio has existed for um, almost 10 years now. Uh, I originally opened that studio with a partner named Stuart Sykes, who mm -hmm. uh, got 
a, a good amount of notoriety with white stripes and things like that. We opened that place together and then he re- relocated to Austin and it became just my place. But now that place is sitting there and basically just houses most of my gear and is run by my uh, assistant. And um, I'm in LA and I have a place in LA of my own, but it's much smaller. So for the most part now, I'm only using other studios. But to, to kind of digress a little bit to your, the first part of your question, I've always traveled quite a bit. And uh, I think that uh, in terms of engineering, it makes you a better engineer to go to different places and see how they do things. And also it just sort of tests your sort of your chops as an engineer and signal flow. And it also makes you work on gear that you normally wouldn't work on, all that sort of stuff. And then as a producer, it does sort of provide for a more vivid experience. And that's the amazing thing about being a producer. The things that can inspire you while you're making a record are all the things that aren't technical, whereas, you know, engineering you're sort of more like a director of photography where it's it is much more of a technical endeavor and it's more exacting and you can be very creative with it but there is certain a certain amount of like scientific process that has to be applied whereas a producer you know you can be influenced by the town you're in mm-hmm. the book you're reading the movie you watched last night like so it, it being out of town can like bring something out of your spirit that that being in town doesn't as a producer i like that because I, I think that's the thing is the uh, engineer in me that usually gets annoyed at other studios and the producer and me gets excited. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I don't like, I don't, I usually don't get too irritated by studios, even the real junky ones, because I've always sort of been somebody who's up for a challenge. Now, mm-hmm. of course, there are situations where it's been a problem, you know, like I walk into a studio and technically it's not up to snuff in some, some way. And, and, uh, the artist is getting frustrated and you're, it essentially is coming down on you because you're the one, you know, steering the ship and um it's kind of hard to explain to the artist that you know it's the gear not the engineer Mm -hmm. sometimes it is the gear not the engineer i like that so we talked about this balance between producer and engineer on this podcast i often like to say there's like the side that's like the albini who intentionally doesn't get involved and then like a john feldman let's say who rewrites band songs where do you often see yourself in that space. Yeah, I talk about this a lot. I usually like whenever I'm talking to a band for the first time about like if we're flirting with each other about working together, you know, I always say that I'm a spectrum producer. I came from a world of where I didn't fuck with the songs. That's where I came from. So I'm very comfortable to just sit there and kind of like kick the ball into scrimmage. Uh, but I also, on the other side, can completely get involved with the songwriting and do songwrite sometimes even outside of producing now. So I'm a huge spectrum producer. I can do whatever seems appropriate. So I have a lot of conversations with the artists about what it is that they feel like I can do to help. And I really don't mind either way. So if the band is like, look, we, we've pontificated endlessly about every single note that's happening. We essentially just want you to provide the overall aesthetic and record it and tell us when to stop messing with things. That's what I'll do. And then I have other artists that you know, haven't even finished the songs yet and uh, want the songs to sort of come to fruition in the studio. I love both approaches and I'm completely satisfied to do either one. But to answer your question, usually somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, you know, yeah, it, it, it can be it can be anywhere. But I would say somewhere in the middle is usually where I'm residing. So you brought up a thing that I kind of really want to get with you, because one of the things that impresses me about your work is that it's one diverse, like the fact that you have 
Manchester Orchestra, Shoo Shoo, and Blondie on the Swans all in the span of a couple of years is kind of as diverse as it gets, I would say. But you also get consistently great results to my ear. What does the conversation pre-production look like to make sure those results always go well? It's a, I mean, making a record is always just a conversation. It never stops. It never stops until... Uh, the record comes out almost, you know, you, you start talking the first time you talk to a band is usually like, you know, kind of an email or something like that. Then you get on the phone and you just get a feeling for where they're coming from, what they're trying to accomplish at this point in their career or or, or just in artistic endeavors, whatever, you know, they you just talk and, and you sort of you sort of uh, put together the framework of sort of an empathetic or not, you know, empathic observer, uh, somebody who, you know, just can be honest and be happy to be there. And I mean, as I always just say, this is something I say all the time is the only reason why you would ever hire a producer is because you've decided that you truly cannot be objective about your art and you want a slightly less passionate, more objective observer. That's the only reason why you would ever on a producer. If you don't feel like you need that, that's fine. Just hire an engineer and, and go to work. But I think most people at some point of making their records realize that uh, they're not they're not seeing everything, you know, because they're too close or whatever. And and why not? Of course, of course, you can't see it objectively. I mean, it's a you're the artist. I mean, it, it, it I think it's categorically impossible, actually, for you to see it that way. Yes. So you see yourself mostly as your greatest asset of what you're bringing to record as like being the objective perspective. Yeah. And just empathy, you know, mm. just somebody who has been in a band for as you know for for more for more than half my life by a long shot i've been making music in some capacity to perform live or to record so i don't know if you could get somebody quite i mean i don't know if you could get somebody more sympathetic than me to the sort of experience of making records because it is it's super hard and i still make my own records and it's it's tough you know so essentially it's like how can we do this most efficiently and less pain you know, and, and without the with the least amount of pain and get where you want to go. So a lot of it is like just trying to figure out their resonant frequency and vibrate with them, you know. So you're, you're going into this empathy thing a lot. And I'm curious because this is not an answer I usually hear. So you think like one of the main crucial things is being able to understand uh, what they're going through and making sure that it's seamless would be the thing or not as terrible as a lot of experiences they have is that what you're kind of saying well yeah man i mean a lot of people if they've been if they've made like if they've made a few records i almost can assure you that one of those records was a bad experience mm -hmm. unfortunately you know uh and sometimes that's just the wrong studio experience sometimes it's just it was really hard for them to write the record sometimes it was personal things whatever that may be so a lot of times i will hear early on about uh, an experience that they had in the studio that they do not want to repeat <laughs> and sometimes those experiences are exactly the experience that other people want mm -hmm. okay i mean i'll give you an example like you know if if a young band wants to make a record that essentially just sounds almost exactly just like their live show. Like they just want a synthesis of their live show, but they go in with some producer who has designs on making a Sgt. Pepper's record, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, there's a conflict there that needs to be rectified. And the only way that gets rectified is by somebody on either end acquiescing to some degree. And that's sort of a shitty thing to put a band through. The producer, I understand that everybody has their own hopes and dreams of what they want to do, but ultimately that those things need to take a backseat to where the band is. 
if they if they don't want to make a record like that, you should either a acquiesce, b decline to do the record, or c find some sort of middle ground. C is probably not even worth talking about for the most part. I, I definitely agree. I think that that compromise is usually results in a bad vision. I agree. I mean, it's like usually endless delegation and democracy when it comes to artistic vision is is usually a disaster. So so go deeper on that. I make the a big argument about that in my last book that I don't think democracy is good for music. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that? Are you of that kind of mind that you need to follow a singular vision of the songwriter, or what is your view on that? Well, I want to I want to take more of a macro look at that first mm-hmm. and say that there, there are like plenty of examples that disprove that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a band like a band that I've been working with for um, let's see, uh, near God, fifteen years now. This band called Explosions in the Sky uh-huh. that is completely democratic. Meaning to say that um, not only democratic, but almost like emotionally fascist, <laughs> because not only do they have to all agree, they they basically have to agree fairly emphatically that a decision is the right thing. Now, that can be pretty laborious when it comes to making art. But that's a situation that works pretty well in my experience. And I don't think that that band would sound the way they sound or be as great as they are if that wasn't the way they operated. Now, I've seen I've seen it work uh, as smooth as like, you know, a greased slide with Mm -hmm. them. And I also see it be very clunky. So it's not it's I don't know if it's always easy, but that's a situation where I can't imagine that band working any other way. And there's a couple other bands I can think of that work that way. Um, There's a a band that I love called Soons that works that way. That's that's one of those exceptional examples. Well, so so can I ask you a little bit more about that? So what I've said, what I've seen that work well is it's kind of like the meritocracy thing of that. If somebody disagrees, that the, then the idea just needs to be vetted more so they can see that maybe the idea that three or two people are with is the thing and then you explore it until the person's like, okay, this is the thing. Or is it more of just like there's a lot of abandonment in the process? So w- what is that? I think emphatic, it's both. Okay, yeah. So that emphatic thing. There's certainly like a, uh, you know, I don't like that idea. Okay, well, let me explain the idea. And then it sort of like turns into parliament mm. at that point. And, there, and, and, and that works. That can work. So I guess what I'm trying to say is is um, those are exceptions that almost prove the rule. I, that is a rarity. I, I see bands that operate that way that are not successful, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes. Um, and I would say that usually, usually the norm is that it's not successful. <laughs> Ultimately, if a band decides to conduct themselves that way, that's none of my business. That's, mm-hmm. that's fine. But um, normally the most successful way that I see things operate is there's somebody, let's say you have a four piece band and it's usually like the Beatles sort of method where it's like you have one guy who writes a song, you have another guy who really props that song up and, and um, is very sort of intimate with the other songwriter. And then you have a couple dudes who are there helping out or dudettes. It can be women too, of course. Mm-hmm. That's normally how I see it work effectively. And then you have like a situation where a producer is like this entrusted Again, sort of objective uh, observer, you know. Totally. So is there any advice you give 
to each band. Obviously, you're working with a span of experience that's kind of varied in things, with Blondie being something in this year of making music, I imagine, before you were born. On to younger bands. Is there any common advice that you have for all of them, or is it really vary? Yeah, you know, I don't know if the I don't know if the actual like creative process is is really all that different. I think that the one thing that young bands can learn from older bands is that you don't have to be so precious whenever you're just trying to put an idea together. A lot of younger artists are quick to sort of toss something aside because it's not them, quote. Whereas if you just believed in it, you it, it could become you more, you know. Uh, so, like, I think that younger artists could learn that from older artists that, like, it's it's you, there's no reason to really be precious. Whereas the, and then on the flip side of that, I think um, older artists could learn from younger artists of just how to be hungrier and uh, dive deeper. You know, so it's like it's the same side. It's the same side of the coin, you know, like same coin, different sides, you know. Totally. So I saw in an interview you just did talking about the Future Islands record that you said that you wanted the music and the lyrics to mimic each other. Is that a common thing of direction for you? I I tend to find that's the music I appreciate the most. Is that something you push on artists regularly or is that a particular case? Well, like some of the music I loved growing up. And I wouldn't necessarily suggest that people, you know, make records like this. I, but, you know, I loved Pink Floyd and I loved The Wall and things like that. And I've always loved music that sort of felt like the music was happening in the narrator's mind. There's a couple other records I can think of that are less popular that I feel like nail that really, really well. Like there's this record by um, Mickey Newberry called Looks Like Rain that I feel like it's just one of the saddest records I've ever heard. And the music, it, it just frames it so beautifully. It's like as close to a perfect record as I can imagine. So I don't know if that's something I think about with every record. I would say maybe 50-50. But like for Future Islands, I, I, I really, there's such an innate sadness to Sam's lyrics and, and to his approach. I think that one thing I wanted was for the music to match that a little bit more. And I didn't, at the time when we finished the record, I, don't, I, I, didn't, I don't know if I felt like we had accomplished that, but I heard the record recently and then I thought we nailed it. Hi. I'm going to just take one second to tell you about something that if you're listening to this podcast, you will probably be interested in. Noise Creators put out a book called The 30-Minute Guide to Getting More Fans. It's by me, Jesse Cannon. I wrote a book called Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business. That's been one of the best-selling books on how to build a fan base for your band. That book is really long and detailed. What we decided to do, though, is make a smaller version of that book that you can read in under 30 minutes that tells you all about how you can build a fan base for your band. I'm sure you've noticed there's been far too many people popping up in your Facebook news feed slinging information on how to build a fan base for a subscription or $100 or something. But Noise Creators was founded because we saw the potential to make the music world a better place. When I started writing about the music business over eight years ago, I always wanted to just teach all the bands that I thought had potential how to do this because I saw too many bands not build themselves up that I thought were the world should hear. So this book has all that knowledge that I learned building fan bases for bands, producing and working in the music business for years. I managed a bunch of successful bands in the past, and this is how I got them to be more than a band that just their hometown knew about. So if you head over to noisecreators.com under the more tab that says ebook, you can get it there for free. All you have to do is enter your email address or your Twitter address. Thanks for taking the time to check this out. 
So with getting good results, is there anything you do to figure out how long each record should take so that you get those good results? I always try to book less time than everyone thinks we need. Huh. <laughs> and it almost always works out fine. Hmm. It's the opposite like of the Rick Rubin approach. The opposite of the Rick Rubin approach? What's his approach? He He's like quoted as saying that infinite time is what's needed for art. And like, you know, there was even like the thing of like early on, like um the Beastie Boys first record, like he would not stop until it's the right collection. And he thinks that um time is one of the greatest detriments to most records. I think that there's this is another two sides of the coin that you have the overly indulgent person who ruins their record and then the the other side of it the person who just wants to get the process done who underdoes it so you have to figure out how to compensate usually for whatever personality that is but so mm -hmm. why less time than more well yeah i definitely don't agree with that process what rick rubin is saying i think that that there is a a situation where you well there's two things i want to say about that number mm -hmm. one that's slight fantasy camp record making right there that's not particularly that's not a reasonable thing to say unless you have infinite resources which mm -hmm. rick rubin has to you know by my estimation and good for him i mean that's that's awesome but i still think that you have a process of making a record where it's very beneficial and you you, you have great results and then it's sort of like as i describe all the time it's like watching a bicycle wheel you now like you watch a bicycle wheel and it's going really fast and all of a sudden it looks like it's going backwards it's oh, like this yeah. optogen that's how i feel about records because a lot of times if you have too much time really Having a bunch of time in the studio, all it affords you is the chance to sit there and wring your hands and, and worry about things that aren't a problem. So I kind of I'm going to have to go ahead and just disagree with that. I think that you should take your time writing the songs, pairing. You should definitely not rush that. Pre-production is important, all those sorts of things. But the time in the studio and the time actually capturing the sounds I don't think that particularly needs to be exorbitant. And I think mm. that you, I, it's completely illogical to expect that people won't go cross-eyed if they spend a bunch of time listening to their record over and over again. Now, Rick Rubin has, he's, you know, he, he does have, have a slightly more detached approach, meaning to say he's not in the studio every moment of recording. So for him, his approach, I think that that's, maybe that makes complete sense because as far as he's concerned, he comes in and hears where they're at and then tells them to work harder and he comes in and listens. And you know what I mean? I think that for him, having just an endless amount of time to have them grind something out makes sense. And I know that Rick's approach a lot of times is just to constantly tell people he believes it can be better. Yes. And that's that's fine. But I think that he's operating in a world where there's much larger budgets. And uh, I'm a blue collar artist and I'm a blue collar producer and I like to help people make blue collar records. I like that. So you talked, though, about the pre-production process. So then is there anything you're doing to make sure that this execution kind of process in the studio is are you ma making sure that the band's songs are written? Like, what, what are you doing in that aspect? Well, a lot of it is sort of like I let the band or the artists just do whatever they want to do. But I kind of I think what I try to do is like get in, get them into a position where they're ready to be malleable in the studio and, and know the songs or know what they want to do confidently enough to try other things. Mm. If that makes sense. That does. Uh, and, and like so a lot of times that's just sort of like reminding them over and over again, hey, this is great. Maybe we can try something like this in the studio. You know, 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 know the songs well enough, but also be aware that it can change and be better. So I know like, you know, there's like the concept of Parkinson's law that time will expand to however much time is given. Is there a lot of having to rethink 
the amount of time spent or do you usually nail it with the amount of time spent? I would say 75% of the time a record is completed in exactly the amount of time we had booked. The other 25% is usually like uh, we decide we want to remix some songs or uh, something pretty innocent like that. Every now and again, there's a situation where we feel like we really didn't get there and we got to book more time to record. But what what the fuck's wrong with that? That's no big deal. You know, totally. that's, that's, that's totally fine. But sort of going back to sort of substantiate my claim of, of saying that we're going to have a specific amount of time where we're going to be creative and we're going to be effective to me just always seems to work better. And that, that even goes back to like having sort of reasonable hours in the studio. Like I like having set hours. So what are your set hours? It's usually somewhere along 10 to eight Mm -hmm. every day. And everybody knows that that's the time that we're going to be creative and we're going to work and we're not going to fuck around. We're going to, we're just going to be artists during that period of time. And then after that time ends, everybody goes home or they go back to their hotel and they, um, they call their girlfriends or their boyfriends or their wives or, uh, husbands or their kids and they're human and they do human things. They make dinner and they, um, they're not a servant to the muse. I, I really don't, I don't thrive in a situation where there aren't sort of constraints of like, this is the, this is the time that we're working. I, I, I don't really like the sort of open-ended, like we're going to, we're going to work till we drop sort of thing, because all that happens there is you work late and then you come in later the next day and you're tired and it takes longer to get, you know, into the the spirit of things. So I'm definitely into um, the John Cleese method of like, (laughs) this is the period of time that you're creative, you're an artist during this time, and then you're a human the other times. I did not know that that was a uh, John Cleese thing, but that's awesome. Yeah. So... What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? I mean, a lot of the a lot of the basic framework of of my ethos, even though he's not a producer, goes back to the stuff I learned early on from Steve. Just his impeccable style of how to curate and manicure a session, timing wise. He has this great ability of keeping work fluid and, and but not feeling exhausting, and it's effortless if you're in a session with him. He, uh, he, he does this thing that I still do to this day where he says, okay, Hey, let's not listen to this for five minutes. He'll say for five minutes, we're going to not listen to any music and we're just going to make jokes or whatever. And I, or 10 minutes or whatever. And he does that. He will he'll stop the tape and he essentially will not let anyone talk about it or, or <laughs> listen to it. And then we'll listen. And then he presses play and then you listen to the music and you feel, and just that little sort of restart, you know, pushing the button is so effective, man. Hmm. You have to like, I mean, you know, the, the saying of like the silence and, and the notes you don't play are just as important as the notes you do play in music. It's, it's sort of the same as like, is not listening, just sort of forgetting for a brief second that you're uh, recording. And he also has a way of making this sort of recording process feel sort of seamless. And the fact that like, Oh, we're recording, you know, it's not like he's able to minimize the red light syndrome way that, um, that I I've really tried to bring into my own work. Now that's completely more of a slightly, that's more of just a process thing as an engineer that I took from him. But to me, that's being a great producer. Totally. That's really uh, interesting. And I think that, you know, it's funny, like you mentioned the John Cleese thing and his biggest thing is, is that like, even when you're doing serious work, there's got to be laughter in between or else it turns to fighting and it turns to bad tension that the Mm -hmm. laughter is what cuts that down. Yeah. 
levity. What is the musical bane of your existence? Pandering, I think. Mm-hmm. I think. I think. Not not too much bugs me, other than cliches and pandering. So pandering to what the audience wants, pandering to what in particular? Uh, you know, like music that sort of panders to a lifestyle mm-hmm. always bugs. Yeah, you know, there's you see a lot of that. Obviously, you've always seen that in sort of pop music and top 40 music. It's like the music is sort of secondary to a lifestyle. It's like there's like music that's just sort of about like this is just something that you play loud on your way to the club. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, here's here's a song about my ass. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but but you see that you see it in indie rock and, and things like that, too. You know, I mean, I think that just pandering is like the thing that it's, it's just whenever I listen to music that's pandering, I just feel insulted. Mm-hmm. What's something outside of the audio world you're good at or really interested in? Physics. Okay. And how does that, does that end up creatively influencing you in some way? Well, sound is all about physics, of course, but I wouldn't, Mm -hmm. I would never uh, flatter myself and say that I'm able to think about things that deeply. I think that like, if you really learn about the nature of the universe and, and, and know um, how little we know about existence and consciousness and, and what the fuck we're doing here. It's impossible for you not to be humbled by that and realize that at the end of the day, this is just music. It's called playing music for a reason. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, you're not feeding hungry children at the end of the day. You're just making art. And um, it's something that ultimately the device is to communicate to the human race. And that's important, but it's not the most important thing. Yeah. And we're all just sort of like, you know, whether you're plumbing toilets for a living or um, David Bowie, you're just sort of one insignificant note in the symphony of existence. And, um, you know, if that note plays out a tune, the symphony doesn't sound right. Mm. But you're still just one note, you know. So I think that, like, keeping it real and keeping it humble is important, too. There's obviously a certain point where your ego gets in the way. Um, this is as producers and artists, you know, your ego gets in the way and, and, and really fucks things up. So it's it's good to remind yourself of how insignificant all of it really is. I like that. So one of the things I appreciate about your records is that there usually is a lot of different and unique tones. Is there been any philosophy on how you've kind of found different tools to use to do it? I noticed like looking at whatever gear list is on is like you have a lot of esoteric gear. Is it mostly just somebody brings something in or is there an exploration process? Is there any light you can shed on that? I think that there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I'll just kind of throw out a few things Mm -hmm. that constantly are in my brain. Number one, I think the thing that I always tell myself is every session, every record, every song, even try something you've never tried before, Mm -hmm. no matter what it is, like shed all, all musical context, shed all preconceived notions and just try something different. A lot of times it starts the creative process to leading to something that I've never heard before personally, even no matter how insignificant it is. I mean, a lot of these things people won't even pick up on, but these sort of micro decisions lead to a macro result. Uh, I mean, that's one thing that I try to do a lot. I think that in general, I just try super hard to make things that sound striking to me because if it's striking to me, then it's striking to someone. It's I mean, just law of probability. It has to be striking to somebody else, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that's just a big part of what production is to me is like you help make outside of the quality of the song and all those things, you just help make it be something that when it comes on, people sort of snap their finger and go, Oh, this song, you know? So constantly look 
for something that sounds striking to you. And the moment that it sounds striking, just believe in it and go with it and don't fuck with it anymore. And don't don't even bother worrying about if it's good, actually. <laughs> just kind of go with it because it will influence how everyone plays to it. And if the artist doesn't like it, they'll tell you. And then, and then of course, you need to do something else. But it's just sort of, it's sort of important to believe in something that sounds fresh, you know? I like that. Um, so... With that, the questions I got from people I, I said I was doing this to uh, interview, people wanted to know what you did on the new Manchester Orchestra, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. Um, they recorded the record with Catherine Marks in Echo, at Echo Mountain, which is mm. uh, Chapel Hill, which is a really cool studio. I did, I did a record there a few years ago. They did the record with her, and I think what they wanted was they wanted to come to me and just basically play me every the, the material and kind of get my take on it. So they kind of wanted the sort of, a, a, a sort of left field opinion. You know, because the record itself, first of all, it's really good record, by the way. Uh, the first it's, song released is. Yeah, they're really, man, just Andy's just a really sincere, passionate guy. And I really enjoyed my time with them. They worked really hard on the actual recording, but I think that they wanted they wanted it to be left of center more. They wanted it to feel a little stranger. So basically, we just hang out, hung out for a while, and I gave them suggestions and song arrangement, and um, I like put you know keyboards on a bunch of songs and kind of fucked up a bunch of the sounds. And that's about basically it. They kind of just came to me for the the weirdness factor. Mm-hmm. I had a I had a lot of fun working with them. They're they're really open minded and really cool people. So. Did you, was your work production or was it also mixing with that? No, it was just production. Oh, cool. I was, there was never any, uh, discussion of me mixing it. It was sort of like they, they started with Catherine and then they took this sort of like reprieve and worked with me and then, uh, Catherine mixed it. Very cool. That's a, that, that, that seems, um, like something that's growing more and more these days is both the, like, take it to somebody for objectivity and then take it as somebody who's more of the executive producer who's listening from afar. Right. It was, it was cool. I haven't done a lot of that, honestly. Mm. That was, it was a slightly atypical scenario for me, but it was one that I really enjoyed. That's awesome. So can you tell us five records that really shaped who you are? Well, the first one, I mean, The Wall by Pink Floyd, Mm-hmm. Um, probably Axis Bold as Love, the Jimi Hendrix record. Uh, the first ZZ Top, uh, the, is the Trace Sombres by ZZ Top. Maybe the first solo record by Scott Walker. Oh, wow. That's a great record. Maybe uh, maybe Helen of Troy by John Cale. Oh, wow. It's an it's a, a, a interesting combo, and I, I think that show, shows why you're able to handle uh, this diverse swath of artists. Well, I mean, I just like music, so... <laughs> <laughs> so uh my last question is that uh could you plug away and tell us what you have coming out and coming up so manchester orchestra is coming out just recently Goldfrap came out future islands came out blondie came out see i produced a record by this band called always I think oh, that's yeah. coming out soon. there was a lot of people that worked on that record i i helped out a, a lot in a more distant capacity on the new saint vincent record and that'll come out sometime i'm not sure when so when you say more more distant what does that look like 
there were a lot of people that worked on the record. Like we, her and I worked uh, very intimately on all the other records, but this one originally I wasn't going to have any involvement at all on it. She she ended up working with a, a a pretty big swath of people, but I was I was much more detached on this one around. But it's really good, and she's she's incredible, of course. Oh, Lucy Lucy Dacus is a great record that I just mixed. It's coming out on Matador. That's really good. Did some stuff with Lana Del Rey recently. That was really excellent. I don't know when that comes out, though. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists, from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.